Matthew 2, 1 to 23. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among all the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they'd seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he'd ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. This is the word of God. This chapter asks a really straightforward question. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Verse 2. That's the question that this chapter is designed to answer in a way. The wise men arrive and they say, where is he? We know that he's here. What's going on? And they step straight into the place that they assume he is. And the assumption is a pretty obvious, understandable assumption, which is, well, the answer is he's in Jerusalem, clearly because that's where kings live. Everybody knows that kings live in capital cities. It's staringly obvious. And so the wise men are arriving, not sort of saying, in what town has he been born? They're saying, well, he's obviously here, so just take us to his house. Or which palace should we look in? And everyone knows that. They, tourists arrive and they want to come and visit the king or previously the queen, and they go to Buckingham Palace. And they maybe go to Windsor Castle, but they know that that's where kings and queens live. 
And of course, the scriptures present a very different answer. And if you joined us for our carol service last week, you'll have seen this. The scriptures present a very different answer. Bethlehem in the land of Judea is where the king lives. That's what it says in the prophet Micah. The king of the Jews is not going to be born in the city of power. He's going to be born in the town of shepherds or the house of bread. He's going to be born in the little town down the road. And that's like the tourist arriving in London, as I said last week, to see the king. And he says, here it is, come to Buckingham Palace. And they say, no, the king's not here. He's in Skegness. What on earth is he doing there? It's not where you expect him to be. And so the king of the Jews is not where we expect. And that, as I said, was the focus in a way of our carol service. That's not what you would have thought. But today what I want to explore is that it's not just that the king of the Jews isn't where you expect. He isn't who you expect him to be either. There's something, a number of things actually, about the King of the Jews, that the Lord Jesus, in this passage, that reflect that it's not just where he's born that should be unexpected to us, but who he is. And Matthew makes this point for us in a really clever way in this chapter. I mean, I say clever, I mean he's woven it into the story, and, but the first time through, maybe the fifth time through, we might not notice that's what he was doing. So for instance, did you notice that throughout this chapter he keeps using the the term the king all the time and he's using the king of Herod, of course, not Jesus. So we think Jesus is the king of the Jews because we know that's where the wise men are coming and we know in the end that we're going to have a festival called Christmas every year in which we celebrate Jesus as the king of the Jews and not Herod. But that wasn't obvious when this story took place. And actually, Matthew has written it to say, the king, the king, the king, the king, the king, each time referring to Herod. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, verse 1. When Herod the king heard this, verse 3, after listening to the king, they went, verse 9. And at the same time as he's doing that with Herod, king, 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 he refers to Jesus as the child, the child, the child, the child. So verse 8, search diligently for the child. Verse 9, it came to rest over the place where the child was. Verse 11, they saw the child with Mary's mother. Verse 13, rise, take the child. Keeps doing it, so it's not an accident. He doesn't tend to say Herod and Jesus. He tends to say the king and the child. And Matthew is making a deeply ironic wordplay here for us to help us see something that otherwise we would breeze straight past. This is a story about a king and a child. Herod and Jesus. But when the wise men meet Jesus for the first time, Matthew stops calling Herod the king altogether and just calls him Herod. So if you look at the text, from the moment the wise men, when the wise men arrive in Jerusalem, it's the king, the king, the king, the king. That's that's Herod's name. As soon as they meet Jesus, who we know is the real king, suddenly Herod gets demoted to simple Herod. And for the remaining six times he's mentioned, it's Herod, 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 all the way through. It's a subtle way of doing it, but Matthew is trying to say, look, what's happened is the appearance of the child has demoted the king. And he's put the king in his place, and now he's just Herod. And meanwhile, the child has been lifted up, and so that you now actually the whole story is revolving around the child and not around the king, who's now simply called Herod. And there's another layer to the irony, actually, which is, if you stop and think, why is it that he keeps calling Jesus the child? Why not just call him by his name? Why not just call him Jesus or even another more exalted title, like the Christ or whoever it might be? Nine times in a short chapter. It kind of sticks in your throat, actually. When you read it aloud, you keep the child, the child, the child. Why did he do that? Why is the word child so significant for the king of the Jews? 
And the answer is because in perhaps the greatest Old Testament promise of the coming of the King of the Jews and his everlasting kingdom, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, the king is introduced to us as the child. This is what it says in Isaiah 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, and the government will be upon his shoulders, brackets, not Herod's, his shoulders, the child's shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government there will be no end. So without even saying that, Matthew has set us up to see the contrast between the king and the child, and the child arrives and displaces the king, knocks him down several pegs, and it's actually the child upon whose shoulders the government will rest, and not the king. The point is, of course, that the king of the Jews is actually the child in Bethlehem, not the king in Jerusalem. And that child is all that matters, and his kingdom is the only one that counts. So Jesus is the king of the Jews in this story, and that's unexpected because he's not who you would think he would be. But he's also the king of the Gentiles in the story, and that in many ways is the whole point of these wise men arriving. So even though Matthew is a Jewish writer writing about a Jewish saviour for Jewish readers, he gives Gentile readers, like most of us I assume, this extraordinary encouragement, Gentiles worshipped him first. It's just a striking thing to draw out. You think Matthew is the sort of the Jew of Jews in the New Testament in many ways. He, he's writing a very Jewish gospel and continually showing in. Notice all the references to this to us to fulfill the scriptures, to fulfill the problem. Matthew's very interested in that. But he still writes this story in such a way as to show that it was Gentiles from a far-flung country who worshipped the king first. We saw his star when it rose, verse 2, and we've come to worship him. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Verse 11. Nobody else has done this yet in Matthew's gospel. No one's worshipped in any gospel. No one has worshipped Jesus before these characters. They are just arrived. We don't even know their names. And they arrive, but they are the ones who worship the king, first of all. And that should astonish us. I think it does. It, it catches me out to think that Matthew... A Jewish man with a Jewish gospel writing about a Jewish saviour for Jewish people, filled with references to the Jewish scriptures and the Jewish prophets and the Jewish law, nevertheless says, Gentiles worshipped him first. These people, as much as we have put them on our Christmas cards so we've become familiar with it, but these people are exactly the people you would not expect to be worshipping Israel's king. They're from another country. They're almost certainly from another religion. We've got, there's no indication here that they know the scriptures. Hence, they don't know where Jesus is going to be born. They are wise men from a distant land in the east. They might be Zoroastrians. They might be what we would now call Hindus. We just don't know. But these wise men are from a far-flung land, from another religion, another culture. In many ways, they are the people who are most far away. It, it's the equivalent of being worshipped by Osama bin Laden or somebody who you would never expect. Like for a Jewish person to read this story then, they'd say, what on earth are those people being the first ones who get to come and worship Christ? Why are they there? What are they doing here? These Gentiles, these distant folk from distant lands. And meanwhile, the people who, of course, you would expect to worship Israel's king, the scribes who know the Bible, are pandering to the big man who's currently in charge, who is carefully scheming to have Jesus killed. So you've got this colossal inversion where the people you'd think, these are the goodies, 
You know, the music that would come on at this point would be like, da, 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 da. these are the great heroes you would think of a Jewish story. The Jewish scribes who know the Bible and they are in cahoots with the big man who's trying to kill Jesus. And meanwhile, the people you would expect to be slightly dodgy, you're not quite sure what they're up to. That kind of tune would come along. The wise men from the east and they arrive and they come and bow down, prostrate themselves and worship him. It's as if Jesus was born today and Christian pastors and theologians, people like me, instead of rushing to worship him, were so preoccupied with our power and our privilege and our influence that we didn't even notice Jesus had been born. And meanwhile, the first people who came to worship Jesus were Islamic fundamentalists who had seen him in a dream or tribal witch doctors who had divined that he was due to be coming by studying the bones of their ancestors. That's the parallel of what's taking place here. He's the king of the Gentiles. He's not just the king of the Jews. People from Central Asia come to worship him. The first and only place he travels to outside of his homeland is in Africa. He's not just king of the Jews. He's king of the Gentiles. And famously, of course, these Gentiles bring gifts with them. They offered him gifts, verse 11, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, personally, I'm not a huge fan of the carol we three kings, it's not my favorite, um, because we're not told that there were three or that they were kings. So um, yeah, there's a few things about it that people like me go, actually, no, I'm not really sure. But the carol does get the symbolism of these three gifts, absolutely right. Gold represents kingship. Frankincense represents prayer and an offering. Myrrh represents sacrifice. And if you know the hymn, We Three Kings, that's what happens in the verses is they unpack Gold represents kingdom. Frankincense represents prayer and an offering. Myrrh represents sacrifice. And it's true. And it's like this, these gifts are communicating, this is the king of the world, not just the Jews, the king of the nations, and the nations will come to him and present themselves as an offering, a sacrifice to God. Glorious now, behold him arise, king and God and sacrifice. Earth sings hallelujah, hallelujah, the the, uh, sorry, earth sing hallelujah, hallelujah, the earth replies. So it's sort of amazing chorus, really, of the three gifts coming together to represent the nations gathering to his throne and bringing all that they are in worship. So Jesus is the king of the Jews, which we wouldn't have expected. He's the child. He's also the king of the Gentiles, which we definitely wouldn't have expected. And the wise men come as if to represent the worship of all nations. But having said that, I think Matthew actually gives another reason for... Uh, gives the, explains the gifts for a slightly different reason. I think he wants us to see that the visit of the wise men, the magi, whatever we call them, fulfills one of Israel's most cherished promises, that the glory of the Lord is now in and through this child rising upon them. Let's, let's listen to the words of Isaiah 60. Six verses here, so it's a little longer reading, but just listen to this. Arise, this is the prophet speaking to Israel, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. All nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together, they come to you. Your sun shall come from afar and your daughter shall be carried on the hip, and then you shall, be see, you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. 
a multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. And you can see, I trust as we read that, that this is exactly what Matthew's describing as the wise men come to Jesus. They're bringing gold and frankincense from the furthest nations that Israel knows about and they're bringing the praises of the Lord and bowing down to worship him. And Matthew tells us about the gifts, gold, frankincense, because he wants us to see this is in fulfillment of that. That promise Isaiah gave 700 years ago of the idea that, that rise and shine, that's where our, by the way, our English expression, rise and shine, comes from that passage in Isaiah. Arise and shine. And it's, a, it's intended to lift Israel's head to say, the glory of God is dawning upon you now. And the reason you know it is, is because Gentiles are coming from far-flung nations with gold and frankincense and the praises of God. They're bowing down before Israel's God. And Matthew wants us to see that this strange moment where this young boy is visited by these wise men from a distant land is in fulfillment of one of those most precious promises. And as if to say to Israel, hey, heads up, rise and shine. God's glory is dawning in and through this child. It's a promise that strangers from foreign lands will ride on camels and bring you presents. Kings will come to the brightness of your rising. The abundance of the sea and the wealth of the nations shall be brought to you in tribute. The nations of the world will gather in worship and it will make your heart thrill and exult as the world sees the Lord's glory. Jesus is the king of the Jews, but he's also the king of the Gentiles, the king of the nations, the king of the distant parts of the earth whose names you don't even know. That's who has come at Christmas, and that is at the heart of the Bethlehem story. And panning out even further, it's one more thing to consider. The chapter reveals to us that Jesus is not just king of the Jews, or even king of the nations, but king of the universe. All the powers that exist, political, angelic, celestial, heavenly, they all exist to serve him, the child. Herod is beneath him, we've seen that already. The child relativizes the king. And so earthly kings and kingdoms rise and fall and rise and fall. Herod, Caesar, Queen Victoria, Idi Amin, Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin. They go up and down, whoever they are, but the child reigns forever. The increase of his government will be endless. Not like these guys who go up and down, rise, fall. His government will be endless. So kings, rulers, archons, political leaders, they live underneath and serve the child. But so do angels. Angels, of course, also exist to serve him. There are at least three different angels in Matthew chapters 1 and 2 who guide Jesus' family away from danger. It might actually be as many as five. If Joseph has five dreams in these chapters, and it, if the other two dreams where it doesn't say it's an angel, that's angelic as well, we don't know. You might have as many as five different angels, but certainly three, who exist to serve the child. Like these emperors and kings and angelic hosts, all of them live to serve the true king of the universe. The king of the Jews, the king of the Gentiles, and the king of the world. Even stars and cosmic phenomena in general, the zodiac, you might say, the, the, the constellations, even they exist to serve him. The locations of the very stars are ordained by God to lead worship from people to come to the king of kings. So these wise men, we don't know quite what techniques they used, astrologers, astronomers uh, in early, the early days, we don't really know, but whatever it is they do, they can deduce from the movements of the stars and planets 
that the Lord Jesus Christ is being born at this time. And in that sense, even the stars themselves are there to lead people to worship the King of Kings. Earthly rulers, angelic powers, cosmic phenomena, everything in creation proclaims the King of the universe. Whether they know him and love him, like angels, whether they know him and hate him, like Herod, or whether they don't know him and got no concept of anything, like stars, they're all fashioned by God, in a sense, to bring worship and praise whether they like it or not, to King Jesus. So here's the question I want to leave you with today. Christians confess that Jesus is King of Kings. That's what the the Bethlehem story is all about. The King of Kings. That Jesus is the King of the Jews, the Gentiles, the world, heaven, earth, and everything in it. And my question is, is he your King? He's the King of all things. That's the Christian claim. Is Is he yours? Are the priorities of your life determined ultimately by you or by the king of the Jews? Is the final authority at this time of year, at any time of year in your life, the final authority over your decisions, morally, ethically, relationally, sexually, financially, in terms of your time, whatever it might be, are those decisions ultimately determined by you? Are you king? Or is the king of the Jews, Jesus the Nazarene, the child upon whose shoulders the government of all things will rest? Are they determined by him or by you? In this life, there will be times when you feel like you're winning and succeeding. And there'll be times when you feel like you're losing. And there'll be times when you're not sure. But in the end, all that matters is the king. All that matters is the king of kings who has come in person in the most unexpected way to rescue you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the gift of the Lord Jesus. Thank you for in the midst of all of this familiarity of the story, how much still has the capacity to surprise us and seize our hearts. Lord, how much can shock us, really, about the Lord Jesus. I pray that you would take up rightful place as the king enthroned in our hearts. Lord, that you would rule and reign over the things that we are anxious about, over the things we give our time to, over the things we give our thoughts to. Lord, that you would be enthroned as the king of our lives, as much as you are king of the Jews and king of the nations and indeed the universe. We are so grateful for the Lord Jesus and his kingdom. And we pray that we would step into that kingdom this Christmas and experience his rule over all of us. We pray in his name. Amen.